my first introduction to this mode of thinking is in the Air Force, we call it the air chain. It is very rare one mistake crashes an airplane. It's usually a series of small mistakes that accumulate to that point. And they would show this, this graphic that we call like the Swiss cheese graphic. And it was essentially like a bunch of 3D pieces of paper kind of layered over each other. And they all had a bunch of little holes in them. And it just so happened all the holes in all those little pieces of paper, which could represent a process or a decision lined up in such a way that an arrow, a mistake was able to shoot through all those holes and lead to a catastrophic event. So like I said, that was my first introduction to, to this line of thinking is that everyone might control an individual process, but what's the point of processes? The point of processes is outcomes. And for us, the outcome was the safe execution of a mission. We have cargo at point A, we need to get to point B, then we need to get home. And hundreds of thousands of people touch that process, often in ways that no one individual is ever capable of understanding or comprehending. But really step one is getting everyone into the room and understanding each person's step in that process. And typically you'll find out, one, people don't understand one another's processes that someone might think one person's step is silly or meaningless or nonsensical, but they might actually have a good justification for that and vice versa. So typically people don't understand one another's roles. So really bringing people together to understand those roles is important. And then from there, you can really start to foster a sense of process improvement. My guest, Seth Higgins, and I met a few years ago on a phone call when he took over as chief clerk in Elk County, Pennsylvania. He called me with questions about some compensation work I had done for the county. Right away, I detected his razor attention to the rigor required to maintain a pay system. I particularly appreciated his tenacity to work through the siloed world of county government, where you have everything from courts to prisons to human services. So when we talked again, and I learned he had moved on to consulting work, I wanted to know where he is now training his attention. This turns out to be helping local governments navigate the maze of state and local fiscal recovery funds. In this episode, we return to his early interest in process improvement and go deeper into what grounds his thinking. He provides good illustration of how it looks when applied to parking, zoning, pension management, union contract negotiations, and even political processes at the local level. He also shares important nuances about the process of applying for recovery funds. So we cover quite a bit of ground in terms of what good process looks like and why your processes are really important to creating good outcomes in your local government. My name is Nancy Hess. I am founder of the Pioneering Change Community for Local Government Managers and creator of this podcast. The music clips by the way, are generously shared by my brother, Joe Hess. So without further delay, let's get started. Let's just begin a little bit. You and I met when you were working for a county in Pennsylvania, and uh, I had done some previous work with them, and you were stepping in as a, a chief clerk, and which I know a little bit about that. It's a little bit like a an administrator. It's not exactly a chief clerk, which in Pennsylvania, that line gets blurred sometimes. As I recall, you were taking on a really big challenge with the pay structure and I had done some work there. And I got the sense that you were, you were really thinking through, wow, this county government is, there's a lot here <laughs> that could be done differently. So when I found out that you moved on and were thinking about some consulting roles, I, it didn't surprise me at all. So I reached out to you, and that's when we had our first conversation after you left that position. So maybe if you could tell us where you're at right now, I'm going to let you uh, talk a little bit about yourself, where you are now, and how you got there. Yeah, absolutely. First off, thank you very much for having me on, Nancy. And yeah, we connected probably about two years ago when I was the chief clerk at El County, as you're saying. We did a little bit of work together regarding our pay structure. And since last August, it's been a year already, I can't believe I've since separated from county government to form my own LLC, Town and County Government Solutions, with the focus of helping counties and municipalities, principally in Pennsylvania, but across the United States, administer their allocation of state and local fiscal recovery funds 
that was a provision of the March 2021 American Rescue Plan Act in response to the COVID pandemic. Since that time, that's been my primary focus. And I primarily work as an independent consultant for a larger consulting firm, Hagerty Consulting, which specializes in disaster preparedness response and recovery. One of the things that I would like to know a little bit more about, when you went into the consulting practice, what were some of your ideas about what you were going to offer clients? Yeah, my principal focus was really helping clients navigate those state local fiscal recovery funds. So to give a brief overview of the history of this program and what makes it so unique is that it allocated $385 billion, it's a billion with a B, to every state, territory, tribal government, county, and municipality across the United States. So to give a sense of scale, Pittsburgh received about $330 million of this allocation. Philadelphia City, not the county, received $1.1 billion. The state of Pennsylvania received approximately $7.4 billion. The city of St. Mary's, which is my native town, received $1.2 million. And Elk County government received $5.8 million. So we're talking about massive sums of money. Now, typically when a program like this gets implemented, well, Congress passes a law, then they cut block grants to the states. Then the states administer these programs to their political subdivisions, meaning their counties and municipalities. And that's what happened earlier when the CARES Act produced a similar piece of legislation called the, I'm trying to remember, it's been a little while, the Coronavirus Relief Fund, I believe, CRF. Yeah. And under that program, I'll kind of got $2.7 million. But we reported exclusively to the Department of Community and Economic Development in Pennsylvania. Now, DCED is very good at working with Pennsylvania's political subdivisions. They know how to make regulations easy to understand. But like I said, SLFRF was quite different. It was purely federal in nature. The role of the states to administer these funds to the political subdivisions was radically reduced. So that means we had to go through the federal rulemaking process. So I was still working in Elk County in the March of 2021 when this program was rolled out and I was tapped on the shoulders and congratulations, Chief Clerk. We're getting $5.8 million, understand how to implement this within the federal law and the federal rules and regulations. So I had to get smart fast. And what happened was, is something called the Administrative Procedures Act kicked in. The actual text of the legislation that sent $385 billion into the U.S. economy was only 10 pages long. 10 pages and a lot of text for that amount of money. So what happened is, is Congress turned over the rulemaking responsibility to the U.S. Department of the Treasury. They became the federal authority with oversight of this program. So then what happened is they had to produce something called an interim final rule according to the Administrative Procedures Act. This is the federal rulemaking process. So they produce an interim final rule, which is a bit of a contradictory statement, but please forgive that. And then they enter a comment period. And this is where the public is able to comment on the on this Fed, this initial draft of federal guidance. Then the Department of Treasury conglomerated that guidance, learned some first lessons, then released a final rule in January of this year. To give some sense of scope, that final rule is about 450 pages, and that's excluding some other very important guidance as well. So the entire point of me going out into consulting is I had my head wrapped around this incredibly complex piece of regulation and administration. And since that time, I've been helping folks. Let's, yeah, let's just take a moment here just to think about why you took such a deep dive. I'm imagining all of the other managers in the county and the municipalities, and they're thinking, oh my gosh, this is a lot to digest. And part of the conversations you and I have been having back and forth is just getting the right resources. How do you leverage your ability to access these funds? So I want to get inside your head. Like, what was it that made you think, I'm going to just, I'm just going to figure this out. Is that sort of part of your MO in the way you manage and your background? Yeah, most certainly. From my experience in government, typically the best way to utilize your position is to actually have an understanding of the text. So often is the case in government, there's volumes of laws, volumes of rules and regulations volumes of guidance and procedures and only the ability to master them is your best safeguard and it's the best way to make sure you execute your function according to essentially what's the people's guidance this is what the people of the united states expect you to do working in the public sector yep. so one of those i thought it was a fidelity to the rule of law and a fidelity to administrative procedures the next is in order to be 
effective at your job, I think you actually have to have a deep understanding of the rules and regulations that govern your job. Mm-hmm. Um, what is it? Can you give me just a little bit of the background? I know you have an academic background. Was there anything in particular in your studies that helped you think, I can do this? I can dive into this and make sense of it. Yeah, absolutely. So, first, I was a veteran of the Air Force and I enlisted after high school. So, I didn't go to college right away, but my job in the Air Force, I was a C 17 loadmaster. And without getting into the details, it's essentially I was in charge of loading cargo in the back of an airplane. I'll travel with the cargo and offload all around the world. Believe it or not, it was a really text-heavy job. There was thousands of pages of rules, procedures, checklists that we had to know how to follow. And that's where I first was introduced to just how text-heavy a position can be and how contentious text could be. Some of my fellow crew members would feel quite heated at times about the meaning of a specific word. So that really opened my eyes up to the role of a kind of interpreting text. I studied supply chain management at the University of Pittsburgh. Then I got a master's degree in public affairs from Brown University. Now at Brown University, that's really where the public policy aspect kind of kicked into play. And we definitely did some kind of comprehensive work in understanding how to read really dense studies and and understand what they're attempting to communicate. So my education definitely played a big role in leading me to this point, but it really extends all the way back to the Air Force and my first introduction to a job that is really procedure focused. Do you think that you have more of a practitioner mindset than an academic mindset? Yeah, absolutely. What I attempt to do is I attempt to cut the knot of academic jargon and figure out how to actually implement it for people in the real world. One thing I pride myself on is, can I take hundreds of pages of text, get through it and produce a couple pages of text for a decision maker to understand what they truly need to know to implement their vision? That is much needed in our world of government today. So I really applaud that aspiration. And I want to think one of the themes of this show is just this data process-driven mindset, which I know is one of your areas of interest. And maybe you could say just a little bit more about what you mean by that. If you could, if you could work to re-engineer for an organization to be more data and process-driven, what does that mean to you? Yeah, absolutely. I'll answer that question by way of example. So my first foray into that is uh, when I was in grad school, we had to do a consultancy period with someone in the public sector, whether it be governments or an NGO style organization. So I wanted to go home to St. Mary's and see if I could lend any of my talents, if I had any, to St. Mary's. And one of the projects I did was analyzing their public parking system. St. Mary's, has a, it's, it's a pretty rural community. They have a pretty pretty modest public parking system, but they do have parking meters and they do have a limited amount of permitting. And the question was, is they weren't really sure how much money their public parking system costs. They knew how much revenue it generated. That's a pretty easy thing to calculate. It's a little more difficult to calculate how much money the public parking system costs. So you're looking at how much does it cost to pay the the meter repairman? How much does it cost to pay the meter enforcement officials? How much does it cost to paint the lines of the public parking spaces to pave those lines, so on and so forth? Now, St. Mary's had an incredibly talented public works department. They had an incredibly talented finance department, and they each produced their own set of data, but they didn't have the time or the resources to combine those two data streams into one unified source to truly paint a full picture of what was happening with the city's public parking infrastructure. So I was able to conduct that study for them and revealed their public parking system was likely operating at a $30,000 a year budget deficit. So then what I did from that kind of study is I went to the city manager and council and said, hey, listen, currently you're essentially subsidizing public parking. The public is subsidizing it. When you park your car, other people are helping you pay for it because you're actually not paying for the full amount of services you're receiving. And that's okay. That's a political decision. That's not to say whether or not that's right or wrong. But the question is, do we want that as a community truly? Do we know that's actually what we're getting? And if the answer is no, 
can we implement a new system to go elsewhere? Can we make it budget, budget deficit neutral, or can we make public parking a revenue generating source of income? And that's what, that was my first introduction into the world of data. Seth, this reminds me of some of the work that I do with process improvement. And one of the areas that even at the recent ICMA conference, I saw that this is not necessarily acknowledged. Even those organizations that are working on core processes, I see that they're working within silos. And they need a Seth or somebody like you to go connect all the pieces to the process where my consulting work is about getting them all in the room and saying, okay, that conversation you were having is why is this important? What is it about this that we really care about in our community? What is it we're trying to achieve? And then we begin to look at everyone that touches that process. Finance touches a piece of it. And Public works touches a piece of it and economic touches a piece of it. And everybody has a piece of this puzzle, what it is that makes this an important core process for the community. And so taking that sort of the ideas that you glean from that process and putting it into a way for an organization to think about how they, how they really want that parking process to look going forward and then having that metric so that each peak each part of the organization that touches that process knows what they have to bring to it. Because I don't know if you have any memories of this from that process, but if one one area of the organization falls down on their part, the whole thing goes down. The parking becomes an issue if there's maintenance issues, if there's safety issues. How about that? The police are a big part of safety. And it's, it's a great example Because you can say, what's parking? Let's hire somebody. They can work on parking. No, it's everybody has to get together in the rooms. Would you? (laughs) Yeah, certainly. I can speak to that. And I'm going to reach back a little bit further in my experience. And again, this is my first introduction to this mode of thinking is in the Air Force. We call it the air chain. It is very rare one mistake crashes an airplane. Um, It's usually a series of small mistakes that accumulate to that point. And they would show this, this graphic that we call like the Swiss cheese graphic. It was essentially like a bunch of 3D pieces of paper kind of layered over each other. And they all had a bunch of little holes in them. And it just so happened all the holes in all those little pieces of paper, which could represent a process or a decision lined up in such a way that an arrow, a mistake was able to shoot through all those holes and lead to a catastrophic event. So like I said, that was my first introduction to, to this line of thinking is that everyone might control an individual process, but what's the point of processes? The point of processes is outcomes. And for us, the outcome was the safe execution of a mission. We have cargo at point A, we need to get to point B, then we need to get home. And hundreds, if not thousands of people touch that process, often in ways that no one individual is ever capable of understanding or comprehending. So some processes are so scaled it's very difficult to understand what's actually going on. But typically when you're talking about government, especially smaller county municipal governments, you're actually able to get all those folks into the same room to discuss that process. Typically have an ability to have fairly good oversight of that process. But really step one is getting everyone into the room and understanding each person's step in that process. And typically you'll find out, one, people don't understand one another's processes that someone might think one person's step is silly or meaningless or nonsensical, but they might actually have good justification for that and vice versa. So typically people don't understand one another's roles. So really bringing people together to understand those roles is important. And then from there, you can really start to foster a sense of process improvement. Okay, now we all understand why we are executing this function and the role we each play in executing this function. And from that understanding, how can we improve this process? again, to achieve a desired outcome. Sometimes you will see people focus on the process without understanding what does that process exist for? It exists for a given outcome. Yes, I love the emphasis on role. So if if I'm talking about the process in a very objective way, this is the way the process should be done, I have just removed myself from my accountability, from my role. So if you start with this idea that your role is going to really help define the way you're going to contribute. And that means ask critical questions. That means this is now working from my perspective. The classic example in local government that I see is two areas from the HR org development perspective. One is customer service. 
So I get a call. Can you come in and work with our frontline people? We're just having a terrible time with customer service and the elected body is getting hit on the golf course with complaints about unresolved things. And you go in and you do the frontline training because that's what they want you to do. But and as soon as you start talking to the front line, they're the tip of the spear. And they're trying to push information back to say, this is what we need up here. <laughs> and everyone's, no, we'll get back to you. And I got to talk to the next level up. And it just gets lost in this morass. But the only one that's getting training is the front line. And so when you sit down, which is always what I require, we have the managers and the supervisors come together. And when we talk about these issues, then we find out sort of the process, which is really not refined enough, not understood well enough. And so you, you have a, a different view. So I'm a huge process fan. That's one of the reasons why I love talking to you. Yes. And so to have that mindset, this gets into a larger question about just redesigning the way we work. If we were more focused on processes, I don't know if you have any thoughts about how to identify them. Typically, just through interviews and conversations, maybe in the case of the parking, that example you gave, I don't know how that came to the surface, if it was something that you just noticed or... Was it part of a strategic initiative that you knew had to be examined? Yeah, in the case of the parking, it was actually quite fortuitous because that was something that the city wanted to do. They just didn't have the time or the resource and they already had the data source. So in that case, it was a very advantageous place to find myself in because it was something they wanted to do. They already had that mindset. And it wasn't driven by that broken linkage that you spoke to. Mm -hmm. And I really do like that example you gave where the city council, a man or woman is getting interrupted on the golf course. Hey, why is the customer service not satisfactory? And that is incredibly true is, is the breaking point isn't necessarily the problem. And this goes back to the Air Force example and the Swiss cheese chart. You know, something went wrong when a plane crashes or has a, an emergency incident, but chances are that isn't necessarily the cause. It would be easy to look at the pilots or the air crew and be like, they're at fault. No, you need to really go the whole way back and analyze from even before they took off until that moment, what occurred, who else, who else touched that process? Because it's very easy to fall in that trap that the breaking point must be the fault point. Sometimes that's true, but not necessarily. Mm-hmm. I think you also have some ideas about procurement. I keep hearing this identified as a challenge these days. Government procurement is a tricky area. And my thought is that there's a process behind this that's probably not well-defined or something else. Can you talk about some of the challenges of procurement? Absolutely. Now, I was never a procurement specialist, but given my role as chief clerk, who just sits in the center of county government, I had to become familiarized with it in my current position. This also comes up quite frequently, frequently, which I can bring up later. So at least in the context of Pennsylvania, if you're a municipality or a county, chances are your procurement procedures, the floor of them, the minimum of what you must do is set by state law. So in our instance, in the county, you have the county code. Now, if you're a home rule charter organization, you can free yourself up a little bit or define them on your own, but there's still a base level procurement standard you have to apply. This has to do with going out to bid, projects, thresholds, how long a bid has to be posted, where it has to be posted. And on the surface, this is all very commonsensical. And it's not to suggest that the system doesn't exist for a reason. It exists to prevent flagrant corruption, which used to be more of an issue in government than it is today, and we should be thankful for that. And rules such as procurement standards really help combat that. But there are some issues with the current procurement procedures and really did become very bureaucratic. It's very difficult to actually put something out to you have to go to the procurement office. You have to come up with a scope of work. You have to advertise it. You have to receive the bids. You have to open the bids in a certain way. And if any mistake is made along that process, it becomes a rather visible failure. And there's few things that open up elected officials and their kind of immediate team to criticism than failure in the procurement process. And understandably so. But part of it is they're attempting to navigate what can be, especially for a fairly humble, small municipal or county government, a quite onerous process. They typically don't have the resources to have a dedicated procurement team. It's more of a hodgepodge. 
And that was my experience in county government. So that creates a incentive that I don't think, I don't know this, but I don't think was ever the intention of a lot of modern procurement procedures in a place like Pennsylvania, that it ends up just favoring incumbents. Why go out to bid something if your incumbent provider for a good or a service is good enough? Because you don't have to, there's no, there's typically nothing that mandates you to go out to bid every so often for a good or a service. So if you have an existing incumbent and again, they're good enough, maybe they're not the cheapest, maybe they're not the best, but no one's complaining about them. That incentivizes you, that procurement process, that onerous public scrutiny process incentivizes you to just stick with your incumbents because chances are no one's pounding on the door to complain about them and chances are no one's complaining about how much they cost, again, if they're good enough. Like I said, it creates these kind of perverse incentives and we can't entirely go away from having some sort of public procurement procedures. It's too essential to good government. And while I don't necessarily have a solution in mind, I think this is one area where policymakers could perhaps revisit to figure out whether or not the way we do procurement in local government could be improved. Yeah, it's, I think there's, yeah, this is just really ripe with a lot of potential that's untapped. For instance, you're a county government, you may not think about tapping other resources to develop that request, you know, that the bid request, the request for proposal. I know a lot of diligent managers will research, they'll reach out, they'll get some good examples or a couple different examples, and they'll really work hard at trying to identify the scope of that work. But some of the RFPs that I receive are archaic. They're just impossible to respond to. And I don't think people realize what kind of burden they're putting out there. And of course, that sends a message. They don't really want to hear from me or they would not make this request for proposal so difficult. They must have somebody else in mind. So there's the there's just the idea of streamlining, as you were saying earlier, breaking down all that technical jargon down into a concise statement of what they're looking for, and maybe even asking for the bidder to provide their best methodologies and their best ideas, as opposed to saying, we want it done this way, which is already saying somebody else has told you how to do it. I think when it comes to professional services, the procurement process is particularly troublesome because it is so often the case that you need help or you know you need something, but you don't actually know what you need. Right. And you can't put out a bid that says that. So you have to get bid language from somewhere, which means you're probably reaching out to someone to help you prepare a bid. And again, this is me talking about my experience from county government, really, is you reach out to someone to kind of help you prepare the bid. But now that bid language favors whomever helped you prepare that bid language. And I'm not saying anything on towards happening in those situations. Okay. It's just, that's the system essentially. Like you can't put out some vague, ambiguous bid typically that's, we don't know what we need, but we need this legal help. We don't understand the scope. We don't understand the scope of the problem. We just know we have a problem. We need management consulting. We don't fully understand the scope of the problem or the issue, but we need someone to help us restructure our pay system or something to that effect. So very typically for those sorts of things, bidding is the most difficult. Now, if you're bidding out a new snowplow, that's a little more straightforward. We need a snowplow this size, this efficiency, maybe this maker model, who can offer the best price. And to some extent, Pennsylvania has solved for those material goods and supply bidding with the system such as CoStars, where vendors can submit their products that kind of get vetted by Pennsylvania and, and you can just buy something off of CoStars as a municipal or county government without going through the full bid process. That's a bid process in and of itself, the CoStar system. But professional services is the one area where bidding is the most difficult. How did you, when you, when you came into your position at the county, how did you pick up on some of these issues that, that even though you came from City of St. Mary's, they must have been new to you. Did you reach out to the County Commissioners Association or DCED? What were some of your resources? Yeah, certainly. County Commissioner Association of Pennsylvania, CCAP, is a tremendous resource and organization. I formed very good relationships. I was very thankful for them. So they helped me through all sorts of things. Most of it is really just a matter, again, of just sitting down and reading, being willing to read dry, boring documents and being, this is what it says. And then you go out. So county government say, this is what the rule book says. And then so often as a case, your process actually might be slightly different from the strict text. Mm -hmm. Then you need to figure out why. 
need to figure out whether or not you need to try to bring it back into compliance or if you're still within the margin of the text. And that was typically my approach. And at times it's, that can be frustrating for counties because sometimes the laws can evolve so fast, it's difficult to keep up. That is one thing, that's a disconnect I saw on occasion where a lot of people don't realize county government, especially, but municipal government to an extent as well, Pennsylvania, you're essentially an adjunct of the state. So often the case that so many of the responsibilities you have in county government, and again, less so with municipal government, but still to an extent, the state's telling you, you shall do this. And often is the case, the state will tell you that you have to do something, but not necessarily provide you with the resources to do it and not necessarily care that much about how much of an administrative burden that places on the county municipality. So you're left attempting to scramble and pick up the pieces and be like, this is what they want us to do. How much of it can we actually do? And what are we willing to sacrifice? And these are the very difficult internal decisions anyone in county leadership has to face. But again, to go back to CCAP, they often were very good advocates for us, making sure they try to communicate with policymakers and lawmakers in Harrisburg to let them know exactly what a proposed law would look like at the county level. I'd like to ask you, just if you were to describe yourself, are you more of a traditionalist or revisionist, which I know sometimes intersect? Are you tending more towards the evolving idea going forward or are you more about preserving the way things have been done? Yeah, I think in order to conserve, you must reform. That, that's essentially a textbook answer for someone who has more so my approach, is that a system is only able to conserve itself by being willing to reform itself. And reform is typically best handled prudently and in due time. And without going into too much nerdy intellectual history, there's, oh, oh, there's, go ahead. there's folks who kind of support that position going back a very long time. Ra radical top to bottom reform is rarely a feasible option. Whether or not it's called for or justified is a different question. But when you're actually in government, when you're actually in the seats and you are faced with a problem, reinventing from something from top to bottom is rarely going to work because you lack the resources, you lack the buy-in from the public or from the, the folks working inside government. So just flipping the switch and saying we're doing things in, entirely differently, we're completely turning over the paradigm, just simply will not work. There's rare instances where it does, but typically it either stalls and fails or it leads to all sorts of unintended consequences that are sometimes worse than the disease you're hoping to fix in the first place. So that's simply where I start is that I start from the idea of kind of reformist mindset. Essentially, are there incremental steps we can take today to produce tangible results tomorrow, five years, 20 years? And there are some areas of policy and local government in Pennsylvania where that is incredibly valuable. The two that come to mind is zoning and pension management. That what you do with your zoning code today can really influence your cityscape 20 years down the road. The hard decisions you make about your pension today can really affect its viability 20 years down the road. And again, we're talking about minor reformist decisions. We're not talking about completely necessarily rewriting the zoning code. We're not necessarily talking about completely overhauling a pension system. But those minor decisions today, those small incrementalist reforms can produce those radical outcomes down the road without overturning the apple cart. Yes, you and I had a conversation recently where you were saying that it's that difficult decision that it's better made early on as opposed to delaying the difficult, that it increases in magnitude if you delay. Well, it's yes. Example. Yeah. There might be an example you could give us on that. There's a fantastic example. And going back to my experience in county government in Elk County, we had very good pension advisors. I, I thought they were very candid. Um, and I thought they very much aligned their interests with our interests, which is what you want out of a, an advising company. And they shared, I would go so far as say horror stories from the late nineties, where the stock market was incredibly, to use one of their terms, hot, incredible returns. So there's a lot of municipalities, not just in Pennsylvania, throughout the United States, who are like, we have such good returns on our pension portfolios. We're going to take a, I'm doing air quotes for those who are listening, obviously a pension holiday where they stopped putting in the recommended contribution from their actuary. They would rather pocket that money and divert it somewhere else. 
That seems great until the stock market crashed from the dot-com bubble in the early 2000s. And next thing they know, people realize they weren't keeping up with their actuarial determined contributions. And now their pension's falling behind. Their funding ratio is rapidly depleting. It's becoming an unsustainable pension fund. So then you're faced with two unpleasant options. Either you start putting all that money that you refused to put in a couple of years ago into your pension fund, which is going to hurt. Budgets are tight in municipal and county government. So you either have a, a massive influx of cash or you do the worst option in my view, which a lot of people did, is they play the actuarial numbers game. Meaning they would play with their rate of return where they're like, oh, we're expecting a 10 or 11% rate of annualized rate of return on our pension. Unrealistic in my view, especially for a public pension fund, where they would play numbers with the, actuar with the actuarial tables where they'd predict their pensioners would die sooner than the data suggests they probably would. Mm. Meaning that they were going to be paying out that pension in a shorter time horizon than what was probably truly the case. So the classic example where you're faced with a decision in, in the late 1990s for a lot of these counties and municipalities at the time might have seemed like an incremental decision. You know, we're going to take a, again, air quotes, pension holiday and put that money elsewhere when instead the prudential decision would have been stick with the tried and true. If your pension system is healthy, what you've been doing has been working for you. Why deviate? Those conversations also come up around pay. So you have adjustments to benefits. You've had more of a shift so that employees are taking a greater burden of the benefits. Historically, benefits have been the thing that kept people in government. More so today, those who have shifted a lot of costs are finding out that employees are going to other local governments that have not made those shifts. But anyway, the question is still the same. The making that difficult decision says you might have to increase taxes to really make those adjustments around pay. But if you don't do anything, it's going to be really ugly when you have to do it on down the road. It's better to keep with that small incremental steady and today is, it's more difficult than I recall in my career with working with local governments. And it's really difficult to even advise because I know what I'm asking or saying to them is if you want to be competitive, if you want to keep really high quality employees, there's going to have to be a rethinking, not just how you pay, but your requirements for that work environment. And that's a really tough message. Yeah, it's incredibly tough. And I'd be curious if this experience tracks with yours, pay means a lot. It's that's why people show up to work. That's what drives the economy. That's okay. It's okay to admit that. But typically employees don't stay or leave a job strictly over pay. It's often a factor for some individuals. It's the greatest factor, but it's very rarely the only factor. If you're a county or municipal government, you're looking to stay competitive, being competitive in pay is important. I'm not going to say it's not, but can you be competitive elsewhere? What else can you offer employees that perhaps private sector can't? And I think there has been a little bit of stagnation historically in the public sector to get creative. But I think the COVID-19 pandemic kind of opened up some possibilities to reimagine the way public sector employees might be able to perform their work. The most obvious example is the option to work from home, but similar things such as like swing schedules and other things to the like, where perhaps you're able to, even if you can't keep up with pay, maybe you can keep up with other sort of accommodations and amenities that can keep you competitive. Yes. And the other area that I was happy to see was covered at the ICMA conference this year has to do with public service as a vocation. I don't think we talk about this enough. We know the research says that there's a lot of young professionals that are going into service-oriented, like nonprofits. They want to improve the world in some way, small or large. Local government at all levels offers so many opportunities for that. But in order for that to come through, we have to do a lot of work inside the organization to really see ourselves that way. I don't think people inside the municipalities always, always see themselves in that larger vision of improving the community as a whole. Would you agree with that? Like they're thinking, I'm budgeting for the roads next year. That's it, because people care about roads. But there is, I always say that public works guys are like the eyes and ears of the community. They're very connected to safety. They're connected to the social network, the fabric of the community. I could riff on this. I think there's a lot to this idea of public service. Yeah, it's certainly the case. There's things you can do in the public sector that the private sector could never offer. The public sector just has monopoly on certain goods and services that the private sector just either won't or cannot produce. 
So there's certain lines of work in the public sector that it's just, it's appealing and it certainly can be interesting. There's always the tension um, I've seen, and I, I've seen this more so from folks I went to school with and folks my age, where I always caution slightly against thinking that you go into government to be the change agent in and of yourself. The change agent in government are the people's elected representatives. So I always caution people, your job is to serve the people's elected representatives and to a lesser extent, their appointees. But there's always going to be a little bit of a tension there where the vision and the goal of elected representatives and the rules and regulations of a person's position might not always align perfectly. There's processes to resolve that, um, but they're often difficult processes. So I very much do think that if you want to make a difference, the public sector is a great place to make a difference because I think the public works, and I would about say law enforcement as well. It's a great example where you can really build meaningful relationships within the community. But if you have a, if you have a radical reformist mindset, I would suggest public service might not be the best option because it's your job to ultimately follow the decision makers. That's really well said. We had a podcast episode just recently on neutrality and taking on the role of a city manager is a code of ethics. You have to think of your role, as you said, supporting the elected body in terms of the direction they want to go. It's not your, it's not your ball game. Yeah. I, city managers are an incredibly unique animal that I've always had respect for. And one of my, a friend of mine, a mentor of mine was a former city manager. And, and this goes back to the process question, the process question we had earlier in the process question here, when you're talking about the real world application of politics is his frustration is sometimes too, you know, if you made me a contact by an individual council member and you'd say, listen, I respect that opinion. If you actually want me to do that, put together a resolution and take a vote. You can't just call me mm. on the side and expect me to do that. So again, this goes back to that process question that if you do want to make change and you want to make change in government, that is completely fine. But there are processes to do that change. Like, you always need to fight, you always need to fight that internal temptation to make changes that exceed the scope of your public trust. Yes. And that came up in an earlier podcast episode as well, a couple of them, that part of the role of the manager may be to advise about that process, that you can really make a difference in that area. You can say, here's some guidelines for a process that will help us get to this place. You can do what you want to do, but I can't just, as you said, flip a switch and make it happen. Yeah. Going back to that friend and, the, and mentor, one thing that he did is he realized part of that failure did rest with city government and he instituted a system where they did so much more to attempt to educate their councilmen and women about like, this is what it means to be a councilman and woman. This is how you implement change. These are the processes. These are the rules and regulations we have to abide by city. If you want to change them, here's how it's done. So certainly some of that responsibility does fall with, to the folks within government and to somewhat put a, a touch more nuance on my view. I don't think there's anything wrong with people within government advising their elected officials on how to make reforms or to offer recommendations. It is so often the case, the subject matter expert resides within government. That's okay. That's how the system's designed. But the subject matter expert has a vision for improvement. Elected officials should be willing to listen to that. So often organizations fall down on their inability or unwillingness to listen to experience. Yes. And so knowing that is part of your role, I think is, uh, is important in order to express that with some confidence that this is really what I'm here to do. But it does get very nuanced, which is why the experience and I think it takes time to get a feel for this, to know where those lines are. So, for instance, you did mention in our last uh, conversation of union contracts, you've had some experience with that. And I think in my experience, that can be get very political very fast. What has been your takeaways from your work with union contracts? Yeah, so I was responsible for union contract negotiation during my time at Chief Clerk. We had three union contracts coming up during my tenure. And I was very thankful for the process. And I was very thankful to the union members and the representatives that they did everything within their power to make sure that negotiation as, as, as difficult as it was at times, very respectful. So anyone who's entering that start from a position of respect and 
do your best not to allow past contract negotiations to color the ones you're walking into. I was lucky. I wasn't involved with past contract negotiations. So any sort of frustration that may have occurred last time, any sort of disagreement or dissatisfaction somewhat washed away with me. So the biggest thing I'd advise anyone that's walking into a union contract, and this is applicable to anyone on either side of the table, is know what the provisions in the contract are actually worth. A lot of people will negotiate on contract items that actually have very little monetary value, and they will discard contract items that actually have substantial monetary value. I'm talking about things like overtime provisions, shift differentials, certain paid holidays, things of that effect. But that frankly takes a lot of work. You need to crunch the numbers. You need to dig in and really understand what something is worth. There were things that I was willing to give on quite readily because I knew it just didn't cost the county that much money. And it wasn't going to be worth the fight. To, to use an idiomatic phrase, the juice wasn't worth the sweets. And this is really where the delineation between political appointees in the elected representatives can become very challenging is how much do the, how much do the elected representatives want to get involved in that process? At the end of the day, it's really up to them, as it should be. So if a majority of any elected body wants to be the ones to lead union contract negotiations, that's their right. They're the people's representatives. Now, of course, that's going to depend if you're a home or charter. There could be other rules and regulations in place. But your political appointees, such as a chief clerk, they're accountable to the people. If the people's representatives want to take an activist role in union contract negotiations, they have every right to do so. But it's always a little bit brought, in my opinion, for a political representative to inject into like internal county dialogue. Because once you're in it, you can't get out of it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that would be a very tricky situation for a manager who has to keep it neutral. But again, as you said, I suppose in your role, you can step back where you need to if some other conversation needs to go on or in a back room, if it needs to go on somewhere, it's all part of that process. So the process is yeah, somewhat messy. Let me ask you if you want to talk a little bit more about the work you're doing right now. I know you're building a lot of professional skills as you develop your portfolio with Hagerty, but I wonder if you want to say any more about that. I know one of the things I mentioned in getting ready for this is just how often we have these seminars, webinars on ARPA funds, but it's it just scratches the surface. And I think that what you're doing now is important work for helping the government get into a more nuanced approach to the way they are accessing those funds. Yeah, absolutely. So most of this conversation was focused on my prior professional experiences, and I've left that portion of my career behind as of about a year ago. And I'm very thankful for them because they led me to this point. A lot of folks, they their first level of education with state and local fiscal recovery funds do come from webinars put on by Treasury, by professional associations such as CCAP or the Pennsylvania Municipal League, so on and so forth. And those webinars are often incredibly good introductions. I would never dissuade anyone from utilizing them as a tool to gain a foothold of knowledge. But an hour-long webinar can only do so much when you're talking about hundreds of pages of rules and regulations. So typically, if I had to advise someone on how to think about these funds, is I would say it's okay to think about what you want your goals to be with these funds. But then you need to be very mindful of the fact you need to make sure you speak in the language of the treasury in the final rule. Make sure that you are respecting the guidelines. It's okay to be outcome focused with this money, but treasury through the reporting process wants you to follow the justifications they lay out for you. So make sure that you know you're respecting the way it's written and make sure you're following the processes. Pick a goal, pick an outcome you hope to achieve, and then consult the text, figure out whether or not it's allowable, figure out whether or not you, you need to alter or change course. And it's very possible that the goal you had in mind just simply isn't allowable, and that's okay. Be willing to abandon that goal if you cannot find the supporting justification. That's great. Yeah, I think just getting to a place where you really understand how you're going to use the funds and maybe there's some collaboration that needs to happen to get people to come together and come to some agreement. And also there's that piece 
I think of understanding 10 years from now, what the, how that's going to impact if you're working on a large project. There's so many pieces to it. And it's very interesting to watch the way various groups are going at this. We're in some very interesting times to be in this field. I want to just ask you in, in closing it, if you would share, I mean, this experience is going to take you someplace else. I'm quite sure of that. And I'm curious whether you imagine yourself staying in the orbit of government, if you still are attracted to that sort of service nature of the work. And is it is there something even in what you're doing now that you see leading to something else? Yeah, I certainly hope so. At least for the time being, the folks I work with at Agerty and the projects we're staffed on are tremendous. And the thing that I very much appreciate about Agerty and the individuals I work with is Hagerty has, they were traditionally an emergency response company. So if a hurricane happened in your community, FEMA comes in and FEMA brings in a lot of federal dollars, but for a lot of communities, it's very hard to access and navigate the rules and regulations of the federal dollars. So that's something that Hagerty is tremendously skilled at. And they have a bunch of people with extensive FEMA experience. It's called FEMA PA, FEMA Public Assistance. So what Hagerty did when the same local fiscal recovery fund portfolio came around is they assembled a team that like, hey, listen, we know these funds are going to be out there and we know that we have the experience to help people recover from the COVID-19 pandemic. And we're going to see if we can assist folks. So they put together an incredible team of people, many of which had FEMA PA backgrounds or maybe CDBG, a community development block grant program background. So these are folks who are incredibly experienced at navigating federal rules and regulations. Then they also brought in team members who worked in county municip municipal government, such as I did who understood how to speak the language of local government. So with those two streams of individuals, they put together incredibly robust, diverse teams. So I'm happy where I'm at. It has been a fulfilling experience. But in terms of where it leads, it's really hard to say. This is a, a, it's a bit cliche to say any time in history is unprecedented. But the recent volume of federal regulation, whether it be the American Rescue Plan, the CARES Act, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, we're seeing a historic amount of legislation that has a direct impact on municipal and county government. So as long as that's still in the works, it's a space I'm very happy to occupy. Yeah, I think that what you're doing today, talking with us, is really the start of a longer conversation. I mentioned to you, I've had a couple on that have talked about the importance of improving the processes in government. I have a couple more that I'm going to be talking to. And I think this kind of conversation can lead to a higher level of understanding of where we're going, because none of us really know what the next 10 years is going to bring to us. There's so many challenges. I like being involved with local government at this point in time, but I'm glad I've had a few decades to, to get oriented. And I know you're just, you're coming from a perspective, a very solid academic and practitioner perspective. And I'm very excited to see where it takes you. I appreciate that. Yeah. yeah. Yes, I'll make sure all your contact information is available to others in the show notes. And Seth, I hope we have another conversation and maybe there'll be more of us next time. I wanted to have a kind of a one-on-one -on -one with you, but I think next time we might get a few together and really hash out some issues that might be interesting from different perspectives. Yeah, absolutely. I'd gladly welcome that. And thank you so much for your time. All right. Thanks, Seth. <music>